Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Journeying Bread. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 12, 2018. When I was a little girl growing up in Boston, our family vacations involved long road trips. Every summer, my father would invite extended family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, to join us, pack everyone into a 15-passenger van, and hit the road for a week or two. Toronto, Niagara Falls, Washington, D.C., and Disney World are some of the places I remember visiting. What I remember more clearly than the destinations, though, is the food we ate along the way. Before each trip, my mom would hole up in her kitchen with a few of my aunts and prepare a spectacular assortment of snacks and meals for the road. Fried plantains and banana chips, rice flour-based breads like uppams and idlis, dosa stuffed with spicy potatoes, crispy lentil patties called vadas, chicken biryani wrapped in single-serving aluminum foil pockets, and sweet cardamom cake for dessert. These were our journeying foods, and they made up at least half the fun and the mess of each summer adventure. Sometimes we'd eat in the van, passing brown paper bags of banana chips and vadas back and forth between the rows of seats. Sometimes my father would pull over to a rest stop, my mother would spread a bedsheet out on the grass, and we'd feast right there by the highway. On none of those trips did it occur to my parents to skip all that work and just get takeout at McDonald's instead. Preparing, serving, and sharing our own journeying foods, foods rich in cultural associations, family memories, and cherished scents and flavors, was a precious and essential part of our vacations. Of course, those journeys were leisurely ones, and the foods that accompanied them were consumed lightheartedly and with pleasure. But I remember other journeys, too, and other journeying foods. I remember the night my grandfather died suddenly and without warning, necessitating my mother's emergency flight back to India to attend his funeral. As mom mourned and cried and packed, my aunt streamed into her house to stuff warm Tupperware dishes into her carry-on luggage. They wanted her to eat something, anything. They wanted her to feel nourished, even as she grieved. I remember the treacherous drives my father would sometimes make for work during icy Boston winters and the flasks of strong coffee my mother always brewed for him before he left home to keep him alert behind the wheel. And I remember the huge pots of stew my parents brought to my house when I was recovering from childbirth, sore, hormonal, tired, and overwhelmed by my colicky newborn. To build your strength back up, my mother said each time she handed me a steaming bowl and insisted that I empty it. Motherhood is a long journey. You need to be strong. In this week's Old Testament reading, the prophet Elijah finds himself on a journey of his own, an arduous journey filled with peril and terror. We find him in the wilderness at the end of his strength, literally asking God to kill him so that he won't have to face the hardships of another day. The backdrop to this election is Elijah's dramatic and violent defeat of Baal's prophets in 1 Kings 18. In a mountaintop scene worthy of a blockbuster action film, Elijah calls down fire from heaven decimating his opponents and proving to everyone present that Yahweh is the true God. But when the showdown is over, Elijah is not elated. He's frightened, depressed, and suicidal. Queen Jezebel, incensed by Elijah's success, issues him a death warrant, and so Elijah flees for his life. After many hours of running, he finally collapses under a solitary broom tree, prays for death, and falls asleep. What follows is one of the most tender and gentle passages in the Old Testament. Elijah awakens to the touch of an angel, who says to him, Get up and eat. When Elijah looks around, he sees that the angel has prepared a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water for him to eat and drink. Elijah, still sleepy and despondent, nibbles and sips. 
but not to the angel's satisfaction. She rouses him again, this time with these words, Get up and eat, otherwise a journey will be too much for you. At her second invitation, Elijah obeys in earnest, and his strength is renewed. The lection goes on to note that the prophet perseveres in his journey after he eats the angel's cake. In fact, he's able to endure for 40 days and 40 nights on the nourishment of that one meal. Journeying bread. The angel feeds Elijah journeying bread. Bread for the road, bread for hope, bread for the long haul. Or as writer Lauren Winner describes it, the bread that sustains oppressed people on their journey through dangerous terrain. I won't hold back. I love this story. I love that the angel prepares Elijah's meal right in front of him as Elijah snores away, only rousing the prophet when breakfast is ready. I love that the cake is warm and fragrant from the hot stones. I love that it's cake. More importantly, I love that the angel is persistent in her efforts to pull Elijah out of his depression. She wakes him up twice and prods him until he eats the whole meal. I love that she touches him, communicating gentleness and empathy with her hands. And I absolutely love that the angel never minimizes or dismisses the difficulties of Elijah's journey. She never says, get over yourself, Elijah, your situation isn't so bad, or you've survived the worst of it, I promise, it'll all be downhill from now on, or once you eat what I've prepared for you, things will be smooth and easy. You'll be blessed and prosperous, thin and rich and famous and happy. You'll never experience fear or sadness again. No, she says, the journey is hard. It's hard. You won't ever make it on your own. But listen, you don't have to. Here's cake. Here's sustenance. Here's journeying bread. Get up and eat it. Eat it because life is hard. Eat it because there will be dangers along the way and you'll need to stay alert. Eat it so you'll be strong enough to face the perils that lie ahead. You can't sidestep the journey. It belongs to you. But you can choose how you make it. Famished or fed, strengthened or weak, accompanied or alone. Which will you choose? In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus compares himself to manna, another ancient and powerful journeying bread. Manna sustains the Israelites in their long wilderness, just as the angel's cake sustains Elijah in his. And so Jesus desires to sustain us in ours, to be our journeying bread for every road trip, every perilous ride, every long haul, every rocky path. He desires to be our comfort, our joy, our nourishment, our delight, our substance, and our strength, not in some magical cure-all way, but in ways that meet us in our real lives, our real challenges, our real fears and griefs and hopes. Because Jesus knows better than anyone that the journey is hard. He knows it's too much for us to handle on our own. He knows we need bread that sustains, his bread, his flesh, given for the life of the world. Get up and eat. For books this week, Dan reviews Everything Happens for a Reason by Kate Bowler. Two years ago, the New York Times published an opinion piece by Kate Bowler, a historian at Duke Divinity School, called Death, the Prosperity Gospel, and Me. A few months before she wrote the piece, Bowler was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. She was 35. That op-ed burned up the internet and has now been expanded into a book. It was a massive tumor and not a bad gallbladder that was causing her abdominal pain. After falling to her knees in tears and crying in the arms of her husband, one of the first thoughts she had was also, Oh, God. This is ironic. Why? Because she had recently published a book called Blessed. Bowler has specialized in the American prosperity gospel that promises us wealth, health, and happiness. For her book, Blessed, A History of the American Pros- Prosperity Gospel, she spent 10 years interviewing megachurch pastors, watching televangelists, and listening to celebrities pray for people in wheelchairs. She joined 900 tourists on a trip to Israel with Benny Hinn. 
Raised on the prairies of Winnipeg, Boulder observed that even some of her own famously modest Canadian Mennonites have brought into the idea that the right kind of faith leads to blessings. Blessed is the operative word, says Bowler, a shorthand for the prosperity gospel, as in, I am blessed, as in a hashtag blessed at Thanksgiving. For many Christians, being blessed is the goal of the gospel. In Bowler's judgment, this gospel of prosperity and blessing has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. There's a good and proper sense of the word blessed, she observes, as in a deep sense of gratitude for God's goodness. But among prosperity preachers, blessed is a reward for right faith. This narcissistic sense of blessed includes a palpable sense of entitlement and smugness, not to mention the shaming and blaming of others who exhibit faulty faith. In other words, and as Oprah has said, there's no such thing as luck, and certainly not bad luck, only a divine order for my good, a quid pro quo of God's blessings for my faith. This is America, writes Bowler, where there are no setbacks, just setups. Tragedies are simply tests of character. And so the title of her new book, The Lie That We All Love, That Everything Has a Purpose. According to the prosperity gospel, everything happens for a reason. This is what one of Bowler's neighbors assured her after knocking on her door. I'd love to hear it, said Bowler's husband. Pardon? replied the surprised neighbor. I'd love to hear the reason my wife is dying. The prosperity gospel tries to exert order over the chaos in our lives, to solve the mystery of human suffering, because the opposite of hashtag blessed is leaving a husband and a toddler behind, and people can't quite let themselves say it. Wow, that's awful. And so the prosperity gospel offers people a guarantee. Follow these rules and God will reward you, heal you, restore you. The prosperity gospel holds to the illusion of control until the very end, and regardless of obvious evidence to the contrary. In a passage from her op-ed that could have been written specifically for Palm Sunday and the Passion of Our Lord, Bola writes, The prosperity gospel has taken a religion based on the contemplation of a dying man and stripped it of its call to surrender all. Perhaps worse, it has replaced Christian faith with the most painful forms of certainty. The movement has perfected a rarefied form of America's addiction to self-rule, which denies much of our humanity, our fragile bodies, our finitude, our need to stare down our debts at least once in a while and be filled with dread and wonder. At some point, we must say to ourselves, I'm going to need to let go. Bowler's cancer diagnosis has upended her life. She can't be certain she'll see the day her son starts elementary school. She wonders about buying books for projects that might never get finished. And so she writes, I have surrendered my favorite manifestos about having it all, managing work-life balance and maximizing my potential. Her unexpected vulnerability and loss of control over her life have given Bowler what she calls new ways of being alive. She writes, I'm seeing my world without the Instagrammed filter of breezy certainties and perfect moments. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Innocents. This dramatic period movie, which is based upon the experiences of one of the writer's, of one of the writer's own aunts, takes place in the winter of 1945 in a Polish convent, just after the end of the war. But the ravages of war are by no means over. A young French nurse named Matilda is working with the French Red Cross to help the survivors of the German camps when she's asked by one of the Polish nuns to come to their convent to treat one of the sisters. This violates the rules of both the Red Cross and the convent. Her secular worldview and moral universe are turned upside down when she discovers that seven of the sisters have become pregnant after being raped by Russian soldiers at the end of the war. This creates all sorts of complicated moral dilemmas for everyone. Vows of chastity, loss of faith in the face of atrocity, the meaning of a disrupted vocation, what to do with the newborn babies, the many difficult choices faced by the abbess, the meaning of divine providence, and even a romantic relationship between Matilda and the Jewish doctor, 
whose parents died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp with whom she works. This movie reminded Dan of how innocent civilians often bear the worst horrors of war. The Innocence debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. And lastly, for poetry this week, Let Your God Love You by Edwina Gately. Be silent, be still, alone, empty before your God. Say nothing, ask nothing. Be silent, be still. Let your God look upon you. That is all. God knows. God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet. Still. Be. Let your God love you. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 18th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.